Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, I am joined by two interlocutors for a discussion of The Green Knight. We'll be talking first of all about the David Lowery movie that just came out, but also later about the 14th century chivalry poem, the Arthurian tale, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and perhaps more broadly about these sorts of Arthurian fantasies and why we are keen on them as people have been in every modern century for <laughs> up to now. But first of all, the director is a very interesting man who bears watching. He made the movie for Disney called Peter's Dragon. He's made a few small movies, artsy movies with Casey Affleck about death, about mortality, about facing up to the limits of our lives. And he has now turned for a prestigious producer to make this very cheap, but incredibly beautiful looking movie, The Green Knight. If somebody told you that he only paid $50 million to make this just on the strength of the photography, you would not believe him. He's got a good cast as well, and everything is put together, the editing, the music. It's quite a work for this guy to put in, not just as a writer and director, but I think he was involved in the production too. And this is clearly a man trying to put everything of himself into this vision. In that sense, it might be his truest movie, so to speak. It might be what he is as an artist and what he wants to do. And that's the minimum that we expect out of an artist. We don't get that much nowadays. And so just at the beginning, uh, David Lauer deserves some praise and deserves our attention. And hopefully he will turn into quite an artist. But now, let me turn this over to my interlocutors. Uh, Justin, you and I have talked before, but not about this sort of fantasy and medieval poetry. And of course, you teach. I think this movie and the poem might mean more to you than it does to me. You might know about these things more. And of course, Dave, yourself, you have, please tell us, introduce yourselves and tell us how do you feel about this movie? How do you like it? And how do you think about the, its relationship to the poem? I'll go first. I'm Justin Lee. I'm associate editor at Arc Digital. You can find my work pretty easily at uh, justindeanlee.com. I teach at University of California, Irvine, and uh, actually teach lower level writing class. It focuses on rhetoric, but we theme the course around fairy tales and around Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, and then on uh, the great novel, The Neverending Story by Michael Inda, which you can see the imprints of even Gawain in uh, The NeverEnding Story. So Gawain and the Green Knight is just something that has just left quite a legacy for something that was, you know, essentially rediscovered in the 19th century. And it kind of has this gap of influence of a few centuries. So I find it very worth visiting. And, and the film itself is incredibly true to the poem without being recognizably true for people who don't really sit with the poem and think deeply about it. Off to you, Dave. My name is Dave Woods. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach ancient and medieval history, but I also once upon a time did a doctorate in medieval and Renaissance literature. And uh, one of the chapters I got to work on was a chapter on Gawain. And so sort of lived with the poem for <laughs> probably more years than I, I should have, but have loved the poem for a lot of the reasons, I think, as Justin said, a lot of the reasons that I think the film gets so right. It doesn't feel enslaved to the poem, but clearly understands it and captures it in a way that I was both so sort of surprised by and then sort of deeply satisfied by uh, as someone who has taken the time with it to think about it, to write about it, 
and to be able to think more with you guys about it is exciting to me. You know, I, I very much watched it in a theater by myself, virtually, maybe one other person somewhere. And the idea of being able to talk to other people who may have not only seen it, but appreciated uh, certainly many aspects of it is something I'm looking forward to. First of all, David Lowry does have this recommendation. He's obviously thought about the story a lot. He's not trying to give you the mood or the plot of the poem. He's not enslaved to the poem. He's not trying to give you a version as might have been made in the 50s or 60s when there were all these sorts of ancient and medieval historical or fantastic stories screened. This is not some kind of historical adventure spectacle. It's far more introspective. It is far more on thinking about what it is to become a man and how that comes to us in, in light of our fear of death. Our reflection on mortality tests our metal. Gawain is not much of a knight. He is not presented with any of the virtues or equipment that we get from the poem. He's a young man who's something of a layabout. He feels that there's nothing really he can do with his life. There's nothing he has done with his life. And it's not clear whether he's resentful that he's not had the occasion for adventure or that he simply lacks the confidence to go seeking adventure. And so the, the mood of in the first part of the movie, which is set in Camelot, is dreary as this vision of Camelot. There's no beautification here. There is no high romance. It doesn't look like something out of Tolkien, for example. It's a pretty dirty place and uninspiring. Arthur and Guinevere are old. You can see them giving warm, loving, avuncular advice, but also prodding this young man, maybe he should amount to something because they want to leave something behind them. Gawain, of course, is the nephew of Arthur. And so the, the movie opens up with a theme of longing, of expectation and uncertainty that will play out throughout in the three different sections of the movie. But the first part, I think, is the most recognizable because it fits with the mood, not just in 2021 or 2020 before that, but how miserable people feel, and especially young men feel that life has nothing to offer them, except, of course, accusations that they are toxically masculine, with possibly the least masculine generation that has ever been in America. So it, it's just not a morning in America. It's not a time of confidence. It's not a time of adventure. And the story tries to appeal to that in the audience, the mood, the emotions, the acting of this Gawain played by Dev Patel. I think they're all supposed to be immediately recognizable for teenagers out of high school or for a 20-something. You don't even know whether there's a real life for you out there. You don't know if it's your fault or if it's the times or if it's what, but nothing is happened. So this is where I start with thinking about what emotionally this movie is trying to do that is how is it trying to grasp the audience and to show you what is it like to be a young man it's not merely trying to appeal to young men but to show to everybody what young men feel like now and why that might in fact urge them in a secret way to try for honor to try for heroism in a way as it were to go for broke as though no smaller attempt would even be worth it yeah one of the things i found in interesting is you know because it's set later in Arthur's life, we're kind of post-conquest, you know, the Saxons are subdued, and it seems that the wars are over. And so if you're coming into manhood after the great battles have been fought, and you have, you know, these stories of, you know, those who have come before you, 
you're left to define your own story and your own greatness in a way that perhaps the previous generation wasn't. The conflicts that they were dealing with were there to hand for them. They didn't have to be sought in the same way. And as you know, yeah, that can produce a listlessness. But I like that setting. So, you know, early in the film, at the beginning of the feast, and this echoes what's in the poem, Arthur is not going to eat until he has heard some tale told. And it seems that he wants a new tale. So it seems that even for the older generation, there's still this longing for new stories. They're kind of tired. You know, there's this exhaustion with their own stories. I found the differences with the poem, I know we're going to get into eventually, but it's such a decisive departure to open with an aging, almost decaying Camelot. Whereas in the poem, it is distinctly Camelot in its youth. It's something like its high point. You know, Arthur's referred to as a boy. The court is beardless. It is very much sort of all possibility is before them. Everything is to hand. There's an exuberance. There's like almost like a saturation of marvels and adventures. And so much so that Arthur's habit is to just ask for and then expect either a tournament or melee to break out before dinner or that there will just be a bunch of bards you know rolling up with new new songs and new tales because everything is at a fever pitch as far as the activity of the court in its youth and so yeah to make the choice to open completely in the other direction at this sort of other point or this other end of the cycle and yet have Gawain be young as you were saying Titus that he is that representative of sort of the energy of the poem. You know, the whole court has that energy in the poem, but Gawain is looking out at this sort of, you know, defeated landscape or this, I mean, an absolutely exhausted Arthur, a Guinevere that is not this incredible beauty, you know, in silk, but is exhausted and homely. I mean, you know, to be frank. And so the contrast from the beginning is so much sharper and yet, you know, not in any way a departure from sort of what the poem is after, but just an unbelievable place to begin, as you're saying, if you're trying to stage or attract in so many ways, you can feel Gawain sort of grasping it at nothing. I mean, there, there's so little to work with. Everything's been accomplished. And yet the face of Arthur does not recommend whatever has been accomplished as something that is entirely rewarding, whatever it may be, whatever conquests, whatever victories, whatever tales that they have lived out. Arthur does not present a sort of, I don't know if noble is the right word, but he does not present a satisfied picture. He may present a wise picture. He, he may present, as you say, sort of an avuncular, a caring, there's a compassionate figure there. But if he is the future to which Gawain could only hope to live up to, it is a strange future to look at from the start. Yeah, I think that's right. Justin, I like what you said that this is Camelot after everything has been achieved. You can't do it again. You can't just keep playing the greatest hits. If you want to make something of yourself, you're going to have to deal with this new situation where there is no nothing to be conquered. There is nothing to be pacified. There is no great foe showing up just in time for you to prove yourself. It's a different situation. And of course, this is the situation we find ourselves in because these poems too have all already been told. It's not merely about doing new deeds. It's also about telling new poems. Well, the situation has changed. This is not a poem of the heroic age. It's at the end of the heroic age. 
as you were saying, Dave, these people, they don't look like the way they looked in their prime. And there is reason throughout the movie, you see people questioning heroic motives and expectations that you could do daring deeds. And if you survive, you've proved yourself. It has transformed you. This is not an aristocratic poem like the original Sir Gawain. It's a very democratic poem. Here you do see lowly people, not perhaps sitting in judgment, but important to the plot. And you see the highborn people, as you're saying, Dave, how can you call Guinevere home? You will just watch this movie. It will make sense. And you see some of the sophistication of the modern artist. Lori knows what we expect from Guinevere and what we must expect. Today, too, we love beauty. And of course, especially in women. And you see her goodness and some of her insight in the opening part of the movie, but no beauty. He wants you to feel that, to realize that all of this stuff has been lost, that a certain version of idealism that depends on heroism, daring men and beautiful women, that's gone. This is not the situation we find ourselves in now. And the question is, what inspiration can you take? How can you navigate that vision of heroism without foundering on the shoals? Reality is way more democratic. There are no exalted hopes. Nobody's out there waiting for you to prove yourself and to achieve some astonishing thing. You're just another guy. And yet, for all this transformation of the aristocratic version of the poem to this democratic version of the poem in our times, when outside of the South, nobody calls people sir, there's no Sir Gawain's or any other kinds of sirs. Even so, Gawain does want to prove himself. When the Green Knight shows up with his challenge, he doesn't really hesitate. You see in him a mix of recklessness and timidity. He is reluctant, but he's also eager. And Dev Patel portrays him fairly well throughout, but especially in this first part. And he almost seems transfigured. Almost for a moment, it looks like he will achieve heroism. Arthur gives him Excalibur to wield. And the light on the metal shining from this one small window, which is the only one they've got in this uh, banquet hall. But for once, he is transfigured in the light. You can see that for all the transformations and all the disappointments, that hope lives on in him. Yeah, I want to piggyback off the statement about the, you know, this little window, this little portal that focuses the light. It just occurred to me that this is echoed again later in the film when Gawain arrives at the castle of the Lord and Lady, and she paints his portrait using some very weird kind of archaic photography method which is this kind of delightful anachronism, just as like that whole castle is this kind of delightful anachronism. It's about three or four centuries too nice. It's got like some Baroque styling. And so there couldn't be a deeper contrast with Camelot. But, you know, when she's making this portrait, there's this little portal, you know, that she opens, this aperture that casts his image upside down, I think, significantly. And, of course, that's and, true to photo- photography, right? The camera obscura catches your picture upside down. But you are right. It is also symbolically very important. Yeah. So, so we know that at this point of the story, we, we know that we're at this, we've reached a traditional climax, you know, that couldn't be signaled more, you know, where we have expectations inverted and we're beginning to get to the point where the story must reinterpret itself. It's astonishingly well thought out. And that's part of why I admire this film so much is just the composition is so well thought out, so well executed. You talk about the inversion, but there's a line early on, I think it's Gawain with his, um, sort of with his lady in Camelot. And 
she's like, you know, why are you doing this? Or what do you need to do to prove yourself? And she has a line where she, where he talks about, you know, needing to be great or achieve greatness. And she says, why greatness? Why is goodness not enough? And that tension between this heroic expectation, you must excel, you must be the great souled man, you must be the best at something, right? That you must to prove yourself to make some kind of meaningful mark or existence in the world, um, you must achieve greatness. And yet, even from the very beginning, she sort of planted this idea that goodness and greatness are not the same thing, that why is goodness not enough? And that kind of back and forth of what that tension between what is sort of the the motive here of what goodness would look like what would goodness mean in these situations because when he travels between the courts let's say he is being sort of pulled out of sort of world systems or, or you know economies of honor ways of socializing or liturgies of time you know that there's it's the christmas season these things are marked in sort of the built environments and these nice as you say justin overly nice artificial sort of spaces especially hotezer the second castle but so much of that between is an isolating of him as an individual right he's leaving this system and its hope or its achievement of some kind of greatness and then before he even arrives at that second castle you know you have this weird wild lands in between in which he's being sort of progressively stripped bare to be sort of alone in this way and I, I thought what was beautiful about the movie is the poem allows for so much play I mean the poem there's a line in the poem where it's like and if I were to recount all the things Gawain did and all the giants he saw and all you know we wouldn't have time for that <laughs> so it's like it's just this beautiful invitation for Lowry to just say you know what what would be not just fun, but what would be best here, right? What would be yeah. what would be an interesting exploration and remaining completely faithful to the spirit of sort of an overstuffed abundance of things, wild and strange. And Gawain is becoming more and more this isolate. He has nothing to turn to. He's he's becoming more and more desperate. In the work that I did on the poem, there is a rise in the 14th century. It's become a genre for famous knights, Henry de Grossmont, Geoffrey de Charnay, to write sort of these strangely, uh, I want to say almost, as you were saying earlier, almost democratic accounts of their life and knighthood, this sort of pulling down of this aristocratic ideal for descriptions of what it's actually like to try to sleep in freezing cold armor in the rain. And just this strange sort of like disenchanting of the glory they sought in their youth. And some of these descriptions that they write become sort of penitential manuals of accounting for a chasing after a certain kind of greatness, but not achieving what we might call goodness for them, sort of this clash between two orders of meaning between honor and glory for oneself, and then sort of a Judeo Christian sort of sacrifice unto greatness or giving up one's life to find it this kind of thing and the knights because they're christian knights in the 14th century that itself is already very much decaying i think in this way the the 14th century sort of stands as the opening of camelot in the movie this is the 14th century the poem emerges ironically in the 14th century we are past the high point of chivalry we are very much in an age of crisis of famine 
of a protracted, indeed, 100 years war um, on the high side of the Crusades, right? Any number of things. And then the Black Death has struck Europe 50 years, probably, hence, because the poem seems to arrive very late in the 14th century, if not right around the turn. So in some sense, the world the poem emerges in is like that Camelot we open with. It is very much the actual world in which the story showed up, which makes Gawain sort of like that poem, right? It's an odd fit, but it is there. Um, there's a youthfulness, it's sort of out of time, it doesn't quite work. Romance is being somewhat seen through. Institutions have, have not been able to prevent, for example, the church has been unable to prevent the Black Death. So a lot of the sort of faith or idealism that we might assume when we think of the Middle Ages in some generic way is very much faded, is very much cracked by the time we even get this poem historically. So to see Gawain then sort of stripped down progressively as this individual between these kinds of environments, to see him sort of having to face that for himself. It's one thing to hear about it, right? It's one thing to, to see it in someone else's face. It's quite a different thing to encounter your own death in such a strangely slow way, to have this strange game and this year uh, on which to reflect on one's death. I mean, we don't have that, right? That, that isn't usual. It certainly isn't usual for a young man to, to have a year in which to think about specifically himself as an individual ready to die being prepared for death. And he'll only die if he has honor, right? He'll only die if he goes through with it. So there's just so much that's being sort of set in motion. But to come back to the idea of this individual having nothing else to sort of lean against or turn to, because the very thing he chases, this greatness, which is at least reputation and honor, means he'll have to bend his head forward and receive a death blow just made a connection as you're saying that to kind of tie two things together. You know, so, so we have this wonderful interlude in which we use this uh, puppet show, uh, this kind of Punch so, and Judy yes. style yeah, it's so good. puppet show, it's pretty, you know, with the turning calendar wheel behind it, showing the seasons. And we're going to have to get to the theme of revolution, of turning, and tie that back into pagan imagery, which I think that's a big part of the film that we need to dig into. But that puppet show shows you know, him beheading the Green Knight and then shows him being beheaded by the Green Knight. And so it's as if all of a sudden his story has been written for him. And so he can become great. He can become a true individual by living out a story that has already been written for him and enacting it as his own. I just think that that's incredibly profound. I don't know exactly where to take that or particularly to apply that to the current moment. I mean, there are a lot of ways that our stories are unwritten, but there are other ways in which they are written. There are givens of human existence, givens of human nature that we're so tempted right now to, to pretend aren't there. And that pretense, you know, embracing an illusion is no way to achieve autonomy. It's no way to be a person and to be realized, to be authentic. So there are ways in which this movie challenges us to seek out the givens within which we must live and to embrace them as if we had chosen them. Yeah, I think that's right. Gawain has his chance to discover his fate and to wrestle with it somehow. And that has to do with the fact that he knows he's going to die. And yet that certainty of his death, as Dave says, hinges on his honor, on his willing to hold by tit for tat. It's a duel, you dealt a blow, you will receive a blow in return. 
granted the blow is delayed one year and a day from Christmas to Christmas, but it is inevitable. And that helps him in a certain way grow up. Facing up to that inevitability forces him to look at this wonderful world that makes up the middle of the movie. As you said, the first part of the movie is in Camelot and the last part of the movie is most of it in this other castle. Turns out to be the castle of the Green Knight himself. But there's a whole second act, there's a whole middle part of the movie where in search for this place that he does not know yet exists, in search for this world that, as you say, Justin, is strangely modern. It looks like the mansion, the manor house of an English aristocrat somewhere in the 17th century or 18th century. As you said, there are Baroque things about it. There are all the sorts of Gothic revival features or Gothic survival features in earlier modernity. And it looks nothing like a medieval hall. And it looks very private. This is the dwelling of couple. It is not the dwelling of knights and squires and servants and pages and cooks and all that as in Camelot. It's a very different sort of place. You say it's moving towards individuality. It's a vast place, but there's only one couple there. Something that's interesting about that is that servants are implied by the furnishings, the cleanliness, the vastness of the place, uh, the meals that are prepared, but we never see them. And so, you know, and in the poem, of course, you know, it is a, in some ways, it's a mirror image of Camelot. It is full of lords and ladies. And that makes the temptations that Gawain undergoes, it gives it a different dynamic when there's an audience. And in the film, there's no audience. And I think that that is, you know, it's a different dynamic that's worth considering. But just that choice not to show the human accoutrements of wealth was very interesting. Yeah, I feel like this game sets up a particular kind of test, but the test is a test about reputation, right? It's a test about what the Green Knight has heard about this supposedly great court and it's supposedly great, you know, knights, et cetera, et cetera. And as you say, we're on a trajectory of Gawain having to stand quite literally on his own, right, for himself. And, you know, in the poem, when he arrives at that second castle, everyone knows who he is. He's famous, right? The reputation quite literally precedes him and they're expecting to just see him do everything greatly, excellently well, right? And so it's almost like the return to Camelot, right? It is this sort of Camelot that is now a little bit defamiliarized, but but very much like, oh, it's Gawain. We're going to hear the best speech. We're going to hear the finest things. We're going to see the greatest, you know, hunting if he goes hunting. We're going to see all of the things we've heard about, right? So the poem, you know, foregrounds, this is a test of a reputation that is broad. This is a test of boasting, right? Gawain, you know, famously, especially on Jeffrey of Monmouth's account, is the most impetuous, right? He's the most bold in blood, right, is the line of the poem, um, and unsound in brain, right? He is exuberant in his violence, right? Famous for attacking Romans in at least two different accounts in the 11th and 12th century by, there's like a Roman soldier in two different accounts that says, oh, I heard a lot about these Britons. This is an absurdity. These are children, whatever. And before he's done speaking, Gawain has leapt off his horse, run to him and beheaded him with a sword. This is what Gawain is. That's his reputation. It's his reputation by the time he gets to the 14th century, except that the French are starting to do some other things with his reputation as well. But what's so interesting, as you're saying, Justin, is all in the movie, all of that is muted because of the absence of a 
a court that knows him in this sense and a bunch of people, lords and ladies that are expecting things. So we get much more quickly to this private world, which you do get in the poem, which is in the bedchamber, which is when he is isolated with the lady of the castle. But the film goes right there and makes that whole world incredibly small. It is very much this inner world in a way that, you know, the opening of Camelot feels small, feels pinched. There's a small little window of light. And yet compared to what we get with the second castle, it's strangely expansive. It's crowded. It's all these other things. When you get to this second world, this second sort of environment, it is very much that inner world. It is much more immediately oh, this is just me now, right? Like there, there is no time for even, you know, being confused about the fact. The entire space, it feels like a much smaller place, even though, as you say, if you, if you actually look or think much about it, it should be identical in some sense to Camelot, right? There isn't less sort of wealth. There isn't less mm -hmm. extravagance in many ways, but it's very much pinched and muted yeah. all around. So one of the things that I want to get back to the idea of inversion and, that, and its connection to the other world, to Logers. But first, it just occurred to me that, you know, we probably do have people listening that haven't seen the film. And so throwing in a, a quick overview of just what happens, I think will be helpful. If you don't mind, I'll just try to run us through that really quick. So we've already said that we open with Gawain being kind of dissolute, waking up in bed, on effectively it's either a christmas eve morning or christmas morning with his girlfriend who might be a prostitute might not be certainly they're in a house of disrepute and then he goes to mass briefly and then he goes to see his mother and she says where have you been all night uh, at mass <laughs> all night and she calls bs on that and then he goes to the christmas feast and while he's at the christmas feast his mother is performing a, a strange pagan ritual that seems to call the green knight into being. And during this ritual, she is blindfolded. And that blindfold carries an interesting symbolic weight that I'll return to in a moment. So once they're at the feast, Gawain is called up to sit next to his uncle, Arthur. And Arthur asks him for a story about himself. And he has no story to tell. And you can tell that he feels shame because of this. And Guinevere says, you know, you don't have a story to tell yet. And then the green knight bursts in <laughs> on cue and makes his challenge. Gawain accepts the challenge. And interestingly, this isn't in the poem, but in the film, the great knights of the round table don't seem to be interested in stepping up to the challenge. They're just kind of sitting there quietly. And Arthur is too enfeebled to accept the challenge. So Gawain takes it on and, you know, seeing here's, here's my opportunity for my story and leaps over the table after Arthur has given him Excalibur and the green knight presents his neck and he lops off the green knight's head at which point the green knight gets back up picks up his head and tells him one year's time and then leaves cackling then we get an interlude where time passes in that year and then it's time for the, the quest and he embarks on the quest and kind of the first trial that he undergoes is passing through the aftermath of a battle and encountering a scavenger who's picking over the corpses. And it's really fascinating because it's just a, a large field of dead bodies and weapons strewn everywhere. But the battle is anonymous. It could have been any battle. And yet Gawain seems to just take it for granted that, yeah, battles happen all the time and don't necessarily have a meaning. They just are. 
then the scavenger gives him directions to a stream that will, that will lead him north toward the Green Chapel, but just so that he will know where to intercept him and rob him later. And so he gets robbed and he gets uh, tied up and, and left to starve to death. And we get kind of our first really interesting, very intentional thematic cinematography. While he's tied up, we have the cameras looking at him struggling up against this tree laying on his side. And then the camera moves clockwise all the way around the forest away from him and then returns to him clockwise and finds a corpse lying there that has been picked clean. And then it moves counterclockwise and returns to him again and he's alive. And then he begins to struggle forward to free himself. Kind of the next trial he encounters is he finds this house and it's his meeting with St. Winifred, who is the patron saint of Wales. And they kind of do a little bit of a twist on her story, which originally involved martyrdom and then resurrection. But in this version, she hasn't been resurrected. And he is bidden to fetch her head from this body of water, which is, is an allusion to the historical or legendary well of St. Winifred, and where you know, her discarded head was uh, supposed to have created this fountain. He fetches the head, gives it to her, and then she gives him a clue as to the identity of the Green Knight and returns this incredible axe, which had been stolen from him, that he's meant to return to the Green Knight. It's this lovely, weird interlude that's simply not in the story. It's not in the poem at all, except that there is a reference to the location of the well in the poem. And so we have all of these adventures that he undergoes elided by the author of the poem, except you know particular places are evoked. And so Lowry has, has taken this one, drawn something interesting out of it. Then he's hungry. You know, he is scrabbling forward ever northward, uh, and he encounters a fox that kind of befriends him and accompanies him. Then he encounters the giants. And it's just maybe my second favorite moment of the film is when he encounters these giants that are just shrouded in mist. And he gets up on the top of this ridge and wants to get the mountains to give him a ride north. <laughs> and the fox prevents this from happening. And the giants do not speak English, but they apparently speak fox. <laughs> um, because when this fox howls, the giants begin to mimic the fox's howls as they keep striding north. And they're all naked lady giants and somewhat mud caked. And just, they look incredibly wild and incredibly alien, incredibly other. And shortly thereafter, Gawain arrives at the castle. And Dave, remind me of the name of the Lord. Bertilac is the name in the poem. I'm, I'm not, I don't remember if it's actually given in the film. No, it's not that. So there's so much that's not given. We never get Gawain's mother's name, which is important. We never get the name of the Lord and the Lady, which is important, or the old crone, which is important. You know, so we don't get the name of these people, but we have visual cues as to their identity. So when he's in the, he's in the castle, who we know from the poem to be the Green Knight, we never get that in the movie. The only thing that we get is being able to see Joel Edgerton's face emerging through the green and the wood of the Green Knight's yeah. makeup. But what we do get is the old crone, which in the poem is Morgan Le Fay, having this blindfold over her eyes, just like his mother at the beginning. And of course, his mother is, is Margot, uh, Morgan Le Fay's sister. And there's this interesting, just spooky moment, because if you don't know that this is Gawain's aunt, which he doesn't know at the time, this old woman comes into his room and 
touches very lovingly his face and then takes her hand where she's touched his face and then presses it to her heart. And it's just such an intimate gesture that in the context, because we don't know who she is, feels alien and it's unsettling. And of course, the interesting thing, which is great in both the poem and the film, is with the Lord of the house and Gawain, they make a pact, they make a covenant for while he is in the house. And that covenant is while Bertilak is out hunting, whatever he gets from the hunt, he'll give the best to Gawain. In exchange for whatever Gawain receives in his home, he will return it to Bertilak. And so in the film, this is compressed. You know, we have three nights of temptation in the poem that are compressed into one event in the film. And so what happens in the film is the wife tempts Gawain and clearly wanting sex with him, but he resists, but not to the point that he doesn't allow some romance to take place. And she gives him this finely crafted belt or a girdle that is green and just beautifully woven. And when he accepts it from her, you know, the scene is so erotically intense that he ejaculates on it. And this has this pretty interesting significance that we'll get to when we talk about the poem itself. But he conceals this from Bertilak. He doesn't tell him that he received this and instead allows Bertilak to kiss him as if drawing the truth out of him and absolving him for what he did. Then he departs to go to the Green Chapel on his own. He arrives at the chapel ultimately after a uh, confrontation with the fox who does not want him to go to the chapel and meets the Green Knight. And the Green Knight is pleased that he has arrived and that he has fulfilled his end, or at least intends to, and comes to deliver the blow. And Gawain flinches, and the Green Knight chastises him for flinching because he hadn't flinched when he had offered his own neck. And there's this really awesome moment next where he raises the axe again, and Gawain flinches again and backs up and says, is this really all there is? And the Green Knight responds with, what else should there be? And when he raises the axe again, we get what turns out to be a vision. Gawain runs, he flees, and he returns to Camelot. And it seems, tells his own story as if he hadn't fled and is received as a hero and is ultimately crowned Arthur's successor. And we get a vision, we get this vision of who he is if in that moment with the Green Knight, he chooses dishonor, if he chooses to claim greatness for himself without goodness, and he becomes an ugly man with dead eyes, who seems to harm and lose everyone nearest to him. And there's this incredible image then of him on the throne, on Arthur's throne, when Camelot is being sacked, where he finally removes the, the green girdle, and which had conferred a magical protection on him. And he removes it, and as soon as he removes it, his head falls off, as if it had been holding his head on this entire time. Then he kind of wakes up from the, the vision, still in the chapel of the Green Knight. And he, he tells the Green Knight to wait before he cuts his head off. And he removes the girdle of protection and then tells the Green Knight to proceed. And the Green Knight is touched uh, at his nobility in having removed the girdle and then responds very wryly, now off with your head. <laughs> and then that's the end of the film. I know Dave was really moved by that moment. Is this really all there is? Yeah. Okay, so that's the overlong summary of the film. What I loved about that moment is, you know, we've had a whole year and yet there's still an incredible suddenness. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, it's just like the suddenness, sort of the brute fact of death is somehow immediately there 
there's no story, there's no preparation, there's no tale, there's no buildup. And you could say, well, the whole story has been a buildup to this moment. And yet sort of that meaninglessness of death in that moment, right? That, that it should actually feel so sudden, so unprepared for, even though we've had a year for him to be preparing for it. The fact that it still surprises him and that there is nothing else, you know, that death has this finality, but also this emptiness to it, that it's unadorned. The way that the film captured that, I thought was just fantastic. Absolutely. And it's, and it's prepared for very carefully in the film. I think of some of the key moments of preparation for his, that quote is, you know, his, his first trial when he encounters the scavenger thief. He sees all these dead bodies and he asks the man or or the boy, really, why haven't they been buried? And the boy says, the earth will take them. They don't need to be buried. The natural process, they'll sink into the soil and the earth will do our work for us. And of course, this ties into the green giant as this kind of pan-like figure, you know, this Dionysian or Cathanian symbol of the wildness, the untamability of, of nature incarnate that nature is the site of our death, almost by definition. And then again, we get this reiterated in this great soliloquy by the Green Knight's wife, you know, the lady of the castle, where she's talking about the color green and its meaning of what is left as lust's residue, but also the moss that fills our footprints after we're gone and the color of decay, the color of death, as well as the color of life. So all of this has been seeded you know, this expectation that it's kind of this paradoxical expectation that we will discover death to be meaningless. And yet at the same time, it must be meaningful because there's beauty too. I read like that contrast to me sends us back to like that subject of revolution, right? Of the natural world sort of horrifying feeding process, right? Mm -hmm. There's a sacrificial economy to nature that the Green Knight represents again without decoration right so even as she describes that uh, the moss over the grave but also the fecundity right the death and life and life and death but that cyclicality right that circle of life and death that seasonal rotation all of that is also incredibly pagan yeah right it's a closed circle right in that sense that this is not linear time of a liturgical calendar in the sense that the liturgical calendar's cyclicality highlights uh, a beginning toward an end. The pagan cycle highlights an endlessness and a beginninglessness, right? That you are just a part of this process. And so to take your places in it may account for something, but it also isn't really up to you is going to happen anyway you know you can sort of try to find meaning in it but as you said in the battlefield scene or whatever it doesn't really matter nature will take care of you whether you take care of you or not or whether other people take care of you so there is this real strong tension between this cyclicality of the seasons and of the natural process of life and death And the attempt to have a linear story of, let's say, an individual with a beginning, a middle, and an end that isn't just another thing that lived and died and is returned Mm. to the ground, right? And the film, I think, does represent a triumph of salvation history, of linearity over the pagan cycle. And I think it does that in interesting ways. So our opening image of the film is Gawain, you know, 
in kingly garb on the throne in Camelot with the crown descending upon him and holding the scepter. And the crown, it's an unusual crown because it, it in some ways is a traditional crown, but then it has a halo affixed to it, you know, with the rays of the sun. And so, you know, the, the natural way to read that is, oh, it's, you know, angelic halo. It's the kind of thing you see in iconography. It, you know, it's a Christian image. But on Gawain, who historically it has this strange association with the sun god, you know, within paganism, with various sun gods, I believe, we get that emphasized and that reading of this as a pagan symbol for Gawain anyway very early. So when the crown descends upon his head in this opening image, his head bursts into flames. It's such a potent image. And of course, we get a vision at the end of the film where if Gawain chooses dishonor, then that results in him embracing this identity as the sun god, as taking his place in that pagan cycle and actually wearing that crown. And his whole life then really falls to flames. That's so interesting, too, because the symbol that he has on the shield, the pentangle, is described in the poem as the endless knot. And the endlessness of that knot is that it is the harmony of the virtues. It's the harmony of the good life, that there yeah. is no beginning, middle and end to goodness, you know, that there is a strength or a sort of an interwovenness to goodness mm -hmm. on the inside of his shield, as we know, especially from the poem, you know, as the image of the Virgin Mary. And yeah. And she is the, the one who rescues him. He prays to her yeah. in his hour of desperate need. And it's only then in the poem that the second castle appears as an answer mm -hmm. to that prayer. So that tension of a Christian moral landscape and this very much all-consuming sort of pagan cyclical yeah. landscape that will devour anything yeah. is incredibly, I thought, well done, subtly, but incredibly mm -hmm. well done in the film in ways that the poem is very explicit about yeah. the tensions there. Um, but the mm -hmm. film accomplishes that, as you say, through sort of shocking imagery that needs mm -hmm. to be sort of lingered over. Yeah, I love the pentangle because it's also this symbol for the, the interpenetratingness of the Trinity. And yet, for us, you know, as moderns, our deepest association with the pentangle is as a pentacle, as this occult symbol. And we've come to see it as exclusively pagan or exclusively anti-Christian. And we can debate whether the pentangle is the same thing as a pentacle, you know, if the pentacle doesn't have the overlapping lines in the same way. But they're clearly same origin. But as you're saying, to the point, the symbol system of paganism has won that, right? Yeah. Has, has consumed it. As in that case, in our modern sort of coding, has proved the dominant force. To me, that's the, the challenge of the poem. So that what the film does so well is by departing from the poem's ending, it achieves the poem's ending in, in so many ways. The poem famously ends utterly ambiguously with Gawain having sort of maintained his honor sort of and just barely. He has then a strangely sort of dishonorable rant against, you know, why women seduce people and why they're there to blame for all the struggles we do have and these kinds of things. It's very difficult to know what he's learned. He heads back to Camelot with the girdle now on the outside rather than hidden because he at least is going to own it as a marker of shame, as a truth-telling device to say, Mm -hmm. I didn't actually achieve honor here. This is actually going to, I'm going to have to explain this, this yeah. simple. It's going to be strange. And yet when he's received back to Camelot and he goes to sort of explain this girdle, he sort of laughed out. The whole court 
it just sort of completely brushes it aside, this sort of noble thing. He's starting to admit that he was a failure and that he ducked, that he shrunk back you know, three times or whatever, that he's attempting to tell the truth about himself, which we would say is sort of to recover the good, right? Mm -hmm. To actually recover honor in that last moment. But the court is not interested in that story. The court actually overwhelms him by saying, you know, we're just going to make it a symbol of your bravery. We're going to re-inscribe it into a different sort of version of this story. And there's no indication at the very end that part of the story he ultimately tells is going to be the one in which he actually failed, was afraid to die, and then only found honor in admitting his own sort of fear of death and his own reckoning with that. I got, I got to disagree with that reading of the ending of the poem, and I could be misreading it, but my understanding was that he identifies this is the symbol that this is to me. And then Arthur has his knights wear that symbol as well to remind them of their own failings, to remind them of their own shame. Like that's, that came through very clear to me. Not said that way, but he does have them wear it, but he says to remind them instead of their greatness. I mean, he sort of just completely, completely steamrolls what Gawain says about it, at least. And, and you could say, well, there's an interlude or there's a moment there in which he's saying, that greatness is your honesty about your failings. You could, I think, read it that way. This is the whole point of the end, is that it is famously ambiguous, right? That it, it allows for many different sort of takes. But the language of shame, the language of failing, is not the language Arthur uses or admits to. He makes it a happy symbol. He makes it very quickly, at least, almost suddenly, makes it mean other than Gawain meant by it. So whether or not that's accounting for Gawain's meaning and then sort of transfiguring it after that fact or through that Gawain's reading of it, it seems to be a little more sudden and a little more happy and a little more youthful in its exuberance. So that at least my reading, my argument would be that Gawain as the individual is sort of swallowed back into Camelot's economy, that he sort of is swallowed back into the way this world works, you know, once he's back in this world, it appears that that world is so dominant as a system that its version of greatness is always going to win over as a narrative instead of Gawain's understanding maybe of goodness or of honor. That there's two conflicting reads of honor there and that Camelot is still the dominant one, that it seems to overwhelm his reading or his experience. That's at least the argument I would make. But the point being, the, the ambiguity of the ending has left people usually very unsatisfied with the end of the poem, because whatever it does, it happens so quickly that it doesn't feel like it has a lot of narrative sort of satisfaction as like sure. an ending, right? And what I just absolutely loved about the film was that he performs that ending pulls it back, right? He, he literally projects it outward, pulls the ending and its ambiguity mm -hmm. back into the story, but doesn't have it be the last word. He has it be this, as you said, sort of the fantasy or the, the possible alternate ending that Gawain imagines. And then all of a sudden we're back with the Green Knight in the moment of execution. 
and the last word instead is is the green knights right is that sort of is an actual ending and i just love that he allowed so much of what at least in the literary criticism of the poem is this sort of hotly contested how do we read this and he performs it as this imagined thing that gawain himself is thinking what are the alternate ways that this could be read what are the alternate paths i could take with this moment and i thought that was just such a brilliant sort of interpretation of what the poem sort of leaves awkwardly sort of just there it's one of the things i thought he did so so well is he sort of allows for any number of those possibilities but he projects it as this imagined thing that gawain himself is sort of reckoning with so that in some sense he leaves it as Gawain's story, where, where the poem returns it to sort of being Camelot's story. You yeah. know, it was Camelot's reputation, it was Arthur's reputation that the Green Knight was ultimately challenging. Gawain steps forward as a proxy, you know, prove himself, yeah. but also because he's hot-headed. Um, but this, the movie allows it to be much more of that act two, act three, Gawain's story himself and leaving it with him. And I thought that was just so wonderfully appropriate. Yeah, I like how so much hinges on Gawain's own interpretation of a symbol, which is why I love the added note, you know, of his ejaculating on the, the girdle. It, it just makes its potentiality as a symbol of sin so much more potent. And then its inversion as a symbol of something else that much stranger and thus more potent as well. Right. We have Sonnet 129, right? Shakespeare's opening line, the expense of spirit in a waste of shame. Mm-hmm. And it is that description yep. of, of lust and orgasm out, mm-hmm. out of context, out of covenant, right? Yeah, an incredible sort of a capturing of that. It's impossible for it not to be shameful when the film depicts it so explicitly, which is, again, a brilliant move because it needs to be reckoned with in reality and it's not just a secret interpretation you know in that Mm. sense right is manifest yeah and let's not get started on the oedipal implications of margos you know giving him the girdle at the beginning then losing it and then the lady of the castle giving him a new girdle oedipal but also just the incest narrative in arthur's story i mean that is the problem and i I thought the way gawain is depicted as sort of fatherless Mm. in the film as a kind of a bastard Mm. it's not particularly clear that his own mother is not of ill repute right she has a darkness about her the people she's with and not with seems significant. She's not in the court. She doesn't seem acceptable in the same way. Yeah. She's not a part of that Lord and Lady environment. Mm-hmm. So that sort of Morgan, Mordred, Morgos, that complication. Yeah. That's why to me, those moves in the film that people were sort of like, this isn't in the poem. <laughs> it was like, no, it's more in the poem than, than the poem, right? Like <laughs> Morgan in the poem suddenly appears at the end. Oh, she was the one who did all this. And that is another one of those strangely unsatisfying or difficult sort of moments in the poem is that she just randomly appears at the end as the cause of all these things. Magic suddenly appears where it wasn't obviously present sort of before in that way, the dark magic, but that bound up in those violations, those shames of lust, right? Of Arthur, you know, sleeping with his half-sister, that these are all sort of intertwined in Gawain's genealogy in the strangeness of his mother and this doubled mother, this Morgos Morgan kind of thing. It was so Arthurian. I thought like this yeah. is a perfect, <laughs> perfect so, presentation of these things. 
so before we like totally transition into just the poem i got one more and we got to get back to titus but i get one more note about the film that stands out really clearly but has a deeper meaning than what a lot of people might give to it and that's that gawain and his mother margos are indian the actors portraying them and i love that first of all because they both happen to be somewhat ethnically ambiguous and Gawain almost looks like a Spaniard. But I think that there's this really interesting, almost postmodern move being done there regarding Britain's identity, because Britain's identity is so deeply bound up with, with India and the absorption of a sizable number of Indians into its population, into its story. That there's something beautiful about reading them back into one of its founding myths. And I kind of got some of the same vibes that I got reading Katsu Ishiguro's The Buried Giant, which is this uh, really fascinating novel that deconstructs the Arthurian myth in a really elegant way. And while honoring it and while honoring the legends undergirding Britain, and it's written by a Japanese immigrant to Britain, who is himself kind of the symbol, a living symbol of how a Japanese man can become more British than most of the British and more self-aware of that and how we can live our way into other human legacies. Yeah, and that novel is, you could say, a look at immigration in modern Britain, patterned on the history of Britain of invasions, of repeated invasions and transformations of the people, the language and so forth, the religion, and so on and so forth. I think we will have to wrap one first podcast on the movie here, since we have already been through a full-length series and leave a okay. discussion of the poem for another podcast. I'll try accordingly to say in our few minutes left a few things in answer. I think you're right that especially with this notion that Camelot is like the British Empire. And so these Indian actors are a legacy of the British Empire and somehow have to fit into Britain accordingly. You can't be admiring of the British Empire and not take this seriously. So you think about the poet of imperialism, Rudyard Kipling. He loved India. He wrote about India more than most other things. He understood that if empire is great, then England is tied up with India in a way that can't easily be separated. And Lowry also puts this into the movie. That's a very interesting note and should be appreciated nowadays. Now, there are, of course, many deeper issues with the role of women in this movie, the way they are mothering and helpful. As, as you said, Justin, the giants from the poem become giantesses, and our Gawain, he asks them for help. Can't you get me along? Can't I piggyback? As he has been doing on his mother who mothers him. But he has to not. The fox stops him and he has to behave, not perhaps like a man, but at least carry his own weight. So he does have this trouble that, again, is typical of our times. He doesn't stand on his two feet. And, of course, there is the breaking of the shield. When he sees the battle and the scavengers tie him up, they break his shield with a Virgin Mary inscribed in it, as in the poem. And at the end, the Green Chapel turns out that the cross turns into a wheel symbol. And as you were saying, Justin, this is the cyclical character of pagan time. And Justin, you pointed out earlier that we don't know this is a sainted lady who's supposed to be resurrected, Winifred. We're just told it's Winifred. It's one case where he tells us the name one of the few names in the whole uh, movie and so you can see that uh, there's an there's something important there that christian symbols are broken and transformed and people are forced to confront where christianity came from what it meant 
for people to be pagans and in a certain sense valorous and heroic and in another sense desperate as in the soliloquy of the lady in the castle that life is also death and everything is wiped out and nothing remains. And so there is no ground of human importance in natural life. Well, and symbols need to be preserved so that, you know, the symbol of a saint, the symbol of St. Winifred, if it's not maintained, if the cult of the saint, so to speak, is not maintained, it'll be swallowed back up by pagan ground, just like those corpses, and lose that association with resurrection. Yeah, uh, very good point. And you see this threat everywhere in the movie. Do you matter individually? To matter individually is to matter in, in light of something greater than you, but something greater than you that loves you. Nature is greater than us in a certain sense, though not in every sense, but is presented as indifferent and as much a life giver as a devourer. So Gawain's search for honor turns out to be something deeper, search for why being an individual human being matters. And there you see why Christianity might be preserved throughout the story, even though these symbols are broken or transformed to reveal, let's say, where Britain was before Christianity. We end up seeing Green Chapel, which turns out not to be churchy, turns out to be a pre-Christian thing, like the scavenger who says the Green Chapel is just a forest. That's the Green Chapel. It's just forest and mosses. That's what it is. Druids, that is to say, these pagan rites. And their being who you are doesn't really matter. And so somehow the quest for individual importance is tied up with the Christian faith and the promise of the resurrection. And nevertheless, that promise itself, that hope that's so much more present in the poem is stripped away largely in the movie so that mortality is faced and so that Gawain has to fear naked death without any other hope. And on the basis of that, you could see why would people put their faith in Christ. The movie, I hope we have shown our audience, involves so many striking images and it has something of a clear structure. It starts in a castle, it sort of ends in a castle, and in between you see this personal quest that is done episode by episode so that you can think about each story and why they follow one another. It's meant to be seen more than once. It's meant to be talked about more than once. We have made some arguments here and presented some things, but there are also many striking things that people will just have to notice for themselves and talk about with their friends. This is why we turn to artists. They're, it's not a vision that is exhausted in one sitting or even in one chat. As you have pointed out again and again, it's worth comparing the poem and the movie again and again, and not simply to blame the writer-director because it's not like in the poem, but to ask yourself, all right, the man who loves this poem and has thought it through, why would he present it this way? What has he seen there that troubles him? And as we've suggested, it is what is questionable in Camelot and what is perishable there. And in the Arthurian legends, this shows up in the incestuous troubles, of course, of that royal family, just as these kinds of problems appear in Greek tragedies and so forth. These are not happy stories. They are not either propaganda for a regime nor fairy tales simply meant to uh, assure you. They're fairy tales in a deeper sense, that they reveal certain problems of human nature that show up much better in imagination than they would in the newspapers, let's say. And so I hope our audience will look to this movie and turn to the poem as well. And we will do another podcast where we talk about the poem and try to present this other version of The Green Knight also on its own terms as much as possible. We have already shown some of the problems. The conclusion of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is quite a puzzle. How are you going to reconcile honor 
with the difficulties and the fear of death revealed in the poem, very difficult. As you said, Dave, that makes for hot controversy uh, even among academics. And we assume it must have happened with all serious readers of this poem. You love it, and then you see some of these difficulties, and now you have to make the best of them somehow, figure out what is happening here. What is this troubling thing that is supposed to set you thinking? That is to say, at the end of the poem, you're supposed to begin it again in light of these difficulties. Maybe there were things you didn't see before. Maybe you have to question Sir Gawain's attitude more so that the poem, like the movie, requires repeated readings and rethinking. That is because the question of honor and the question, therefore, of, as you said, in modern terms, just in authenticity, involves this terrible burden of mortality. And therefore, the nothing you believe in is purely and simply dissociated from your self-interest. Everything you believe in has some connection to your concern with your own good. The quest for knowledge itself is tied up with trying to find out that whether knowledge is good for us and in what way it might be good for us. These troubling things are the signs of depth of investigation, of depth of reflection, and therefore of human seriousness. And they too, of course, are prompted by our mortality. We would not be compelled to take things seriously if we didn't know our lives are at stake. To conclude, the, the movie does hard work to show this, how this young man who seems hapless in the beginning, unhappy, but not driven to do anything, how he gradually comes to take his life seriously and to take seriously what is offered him or what is possible for him because of his parentage, because of Camelot and the monarchy, because of his yearning to prove himself. All of these things he eventually is able to take seriously and even think through this question. Should you just lie about it and profit? Should you take a phantom of greatness and completely counterfeit what a man facing death in battle actually goes through? These are, I, I think, in some way timely questions, whether it's a reference to the British Empire or, as I was suggesting, to young American men today, or more broadly, perhaps it's not just an American problem. But they are timely only because they refer to things that are much deeper. The fact that you can compare this to 14th century poem already shows that this is at least as old as Christian civilization and the confrontation of Christianity with the pagan past out of which it emerged or against which it emerged. And so the conflict over symbols and how, do they, how they should be interpreted is of great importance because it is a perpetual trouble. Do we individually matter or are we just something more in the life and death cycle? and of no specific importance. Of course, everyone has to wrestle with that. But here is an artist who tries to help us along, both with his movie and by pointing us to the poem that the director David Lowry fell in love with and try to make it come to life again. I'm very grateful for the conversation. I you noticed just in that I fell silent for a while. I was listening. I was very interested in what you had to say. And I'm looking forward to doing another podcast to have a conversation about the poem itself soon. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thank you, guys. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. This has been wonderful. And for our audience, it is the first part. Look forward to a second part soon. And meanwhile, all the best.